there. Thanks for tuning in to The Sun Also Rises. We'll start this episode off with a story that takes place a few years back when an economist named Michael Hausman was trying to figure out what caused some call center workers to stick with their job for longer than others. The turnover rate is very high in these kinds of jobs. It's about 45% annually in the U.S. And that means the companies have to constantly shell out money on the very expensive hiring process. It ends up being about $2,000 to $5,000 per hire for many companies. So Michael Hausman wanted to find out why some of these employees stayed in hopes of helping to minimize those costs. To get to the bottom of this, he first got a hold of a huge amount of data. Data from about 30,000 people who had taken calls for you know, airlines, banks, mobile phone providers, and many other kinds of businesses. And from there, he started studying to figure out why some of these individuals quit while others stuck around. At first, he just looked at pay rate. You know, pay people more and they'll stay longer. And he found that there was a correlation there, but not as strong as he would have expected. And also, the companies couldn't just pay exorbitant amounts to keep workers around indefinitely. So Michael adjusted for pay rate, and he kept on looking for other less obvious and less expensive explanations. His next hypothesis was that it was just a matter of habit. He thought people with a history of job hopping would be inclined to leave their phone answering job sooner. But he found that that was not the case. His data showed that the employees who had worked five jobs in the previous five years before they started with their phone answering job were not actually more likely to leave their call center job than those who had been with the same job for those same five years. So it was not just a matter of habit. So Michael kept on poking around in the data, searching for, you know, correlations and causes and patterns. And as he was looking, he noticed that one of the data points given for those 30,000 people was which internet browser they had used when they filled out their online job application for the call center job. This kind of surprised him. He didn't think that would have been recorded, but there it was. So he decided, mostly on a whim, to test whether the employee's choice in internet browser could be related at all to whether or not they would quickly quit their job. He says he didn't really expect to find any correlation, but then when he ran the numbers and looked at the results, he was shocked. Employees who used Chrome or Firefox to browse the internet stayed in their jobs about 15% longer than those who used Internet Explorer or Safari. He thought it may have been a coincidence, so he ran another analysis, this time looking at absences from work. The results this time were even more stark. Employees who used Chrome and Firefox were almost 20% less likely to miss work than the Explorer or Safari users. He then ran an analysis looking at job performance, examining sales numbers, customer satisfaction ratings, and a few other metrics like that. And once again, with sales, the Chrome and Firefox users were head and shoulders above the Safari and Explorer users. With customer satisfaction, it was the same story. Michael was stunned. How could the browser you use make you stay with a job longer and show up to work more reliably and perform better at your job? 
The first theory was that the Chrome and Firefox users were simply more tech-savvy. But Michael analyzed that by looking at a computer proficiency test that all the call center workers had taken as part of their application. He looked at the results of uh, a typing test as well that they had taken, and all of this proved to be a dead end. The Chrome and Firefox users did not have a significantly higher level of computer skills, and they were not more accurate or faster typists. So it wasn't tech know-how. Michael kept digging in deeper, and he realized that what made the difference was how the employees had obtained their browsers. If you own a PC, Internet Explorer is built right in. It comes with Windows. And if you own a Mac, it's the same situation with Safari. It comes pre-installed. Almost two-thirds of the 30,000 people were using one of those two pre-installed browsers, never questioning whether a better option might be worth tracking down. And that correlated to the way they approached their jobs. They stayed rigidly on script for sales calls instead of kind of adapting to the customer. They rarely deviated from standard procedure with uh, customer complaints. And when it came to their job descriptions, they saw them as fixed. So if they became dissatisfied with their job, they would start missing a lot of work and then soon after just quit. With Chrome or Firefox, though, to have either of those browsers, you have to ask some questions and go to some trouble. You have to demonstrate some resourcefulness. Rather than accepting the default browser, you take some initiative and you consider other options that could be superior. And then you reject the default. And that act of rejecting the default provides a window into how you do at work. So this small act didn't cause the employees to stick with their job longer or to perform better, but it did correlate to other aspects of their personality and their behavior and their worldview. It turns out that those who rejected the default, even on something trivial like a web browser, were more likely to have more perseverance and reliability and better job performance. Michael found that the employees who used Chrome and Firefox would often look for novel ways to sell to customers. And they were more inclined to change their jobs in other ways so that they performed better and wanted to stick around longer. In his book, Originals, Adam Grant wrote about these findings, and he said, The Chrome and Safari users were the exception, not the rule. We live in an Internet Explorer world. Just as almost two-thirds of the customer service reps used the default browser on their computers, many of us accept the defaults in our own lives. The next story starts in 2008 in a computer lab at the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania. The school year had recently started, and a student named Dave Gilboa was talking to a few of his classmates about a pair of eyeglasses that he had left in the seat back of an airplane uh, that he'd flown on just before the school year had started. These were $700 glasses, and Dave had never recovered them. So he was lamenting how he didn't think he'd be able to get a replacement pair anytime soon. 
just because he was, you know, he was on a student budget and eyeglasses were ridiculously expensive. One of the other students named Jeff Rader couldn't have agreed more. He pointed at the glasses he was wearing. It was the same pair that he'd had for four or five years, and they were in really bad shape. The frames were actually being held together by a paperclip, and Jeff's prescription had changed twice since he bought them. So the glasses only partially clarified his vision, and they were in desperate need of replacement. But he just kept wearing them anyway, month after month, because replacements were so expensive. The students kept talking, and they did a bit of research, and they found that a European company called Luxottica was the real Goliath of the eyewear industry. This company controlled 80% of the market. You might not have heard much about Luxottica, but if you're in the U.S., you probably have heard of LensCrafters, which is a division of Luxottica. And you may have also heard of Pearl Vision, Ray-Ban, Oakley, Sears Optical, Pearsall. Those are all divisions of Luxottica, and there's about a half a dozen more as well. And then Luxottica also makes glasses for designer brands, such as Chanel, Prada, Armani, and Dolce Gabbana, and many others. So Luxottica was gargantuan. It was the behemoth, the 800-pound gorilla of eyewear. It was pretty close to being a monopoly, and they used that status to charge customers about 12 to 20 times the cost for their glasses. So just an exorbitant markup there. And Luxottica was making billions from this. They were actually raking in about $7 billion a year. At this time, more than 99% of eyeglasses were sold in stores. The internet, of course, was very much alive in 2008, but with something like prescription eyewear, people viewed it as a medical item that they wanted to be able to try on and have adjusted by uh, you know, a specialist if there was a need for adjustments. There were a few small vendors that sold cheap glasses online, but if you wanted something that was both affordable and of good quality, and that came with good customer service attached to the sale, there were really no options. So the overwhelming majority of eyeglass purchases were in person, in stores. And as I said, about 80% of those were going to Luxottica. Well, Dave Gilboa and Jeff Rader and two other students named Neil Blumenthal and Andy Hunt, they kept talking about it and they eventually started to ask why people should have to pay that much to this European company every time they left their glasses on an airplane or had a change in their prescription. Why should there be a 12 to 20-fold markup for good quality, fashionable glasses? Basically, they asked, why should we accept this default? When Dave and the other three first started talking to their, uh, their classmates and their professors about their new idea of selling nice glasses online at affordable prices, it was not well-received. They kept hearing that people wouldn't buy them because everyone knows you have to try your glasses on first. And then they also kept hearing, you know, this is 2008. If your idea were viable, someone would have long ago accomplished it. It would have already been done. So they were being told that the default was too well established and that it couldn't be changed. This is how things are and this is how they'll stay.
None of these four men had a background in optometry or e-commerce or fashion or apparel or retail. And critics of their idea would sometimes bring that up as part of their criticism. But they weren't deterred by any of that, and they started a company, an online David, going up against Luxottica's Goliath. And they knew that they were trying to reject a default that was really deeply entrenched and fortified. They knew that they were trying to break free of the shackles of market and even social pressure. So they chose a name from characters created by the novelist Jack Kerouac. Kerouac was renowned for rejecting convention and defaults, and one of his characters' names was Warby Pepper, and another was Zach Parker. So the four students combined those two names, and they called their eyewear company Warby Parker. So they had their name in place, but that was about all at that point. The following months were incredibly arduous. These four men were attempting a shakeup of the entire eyewear industry, and they were doing it in their free time after classes and on a tight budget. They worked mainly at this time out of Neil's apartment in Philadelphia, and there were hundreds of tasks to accomplish, including building a website that would convince consumers to take a chance on buying prescription eyewear online. To get over that particular hurdle, they came up with a home try-on plan. With this, they would send five designer frames to a customer. The customer could try them on and see which ones looked right and felt comfortable on their face. And then the customer could send them all back to Warby Parker to get the correct lenses installed in the frame or frames that they liked best. They also made a decision early on that doesn't sound so revolutionary now in 2021, but at the time it was pretty unusual. And that was, for every pair of eyeglasses that Warby Parker sold, they would give away a pair to a person in need, along with an eye exam. And the price they settled on for all of this was $95. So for a pair of high-quality, fashionable glasses that Luxottica would have charged anywhere from $500 to maybe $900 for, Warby Parker would charge $95. And each customer would pay that money knowing that a visually impaired person in a place like India or Africa would also be getting the gift of clarified sight along with it. Warby Parker describes this aspect of their business model as buy one, give one. As the months went by, they scrambled to get the hundreds of pieces into place and to build this website that would really, you know, bring it all together. And at 4 a.m., the day before the company launched, warbyparker.com went live. This was February 15th of 2010. The four students expected to start off selling a couple of pairs a day, but within 48 hours, Warby Parker was so flooded with orders that they had to start putting customers on a wait list. Within three weeks, they hit their first year sales target, and they had some 20,000 people on a wait list. It ended up taking them about nine months to stock enough glasses to meet all of the demand. And from there, it just kept on growing. By 2015, they were clearing more than $100 million in yearly revenue and the company was valued at more than a billion dollars. By this time, they had created one of the most recognized brands on the globe, and they had donated one million pairs of glasses to people in need. 
That year, Fast Company magazine didn't just include Warby Parker on their vaunted list of the most innovative companies, they put them at number one, the most innovative company. And the title was fitting because the four students had innovated where few thought it was possible. They had rejected a default that so many others had thought was the only option. They had shaken up an entire enormous industry. And in the process, they had made the world a little bit brighter for many people. I mentioned Adam Grant a moment ago and his book Originals that touches a lot on the idea of rejecting the default. In one section of this, he writes, The hallmark of originality is rejecting the default and exploring whether a better option exists. The starting point is curiosity, pondering why the default exists in the first place. And then he goes on here to say, We're driven to question defaults when we experience vuja de, the opposite of deja vu. Deja vu occurs when we encounter something new, but it feels as if we've seen it before. Vuja de is the reverse. We face something familiar, but we see it with a fresh perspective that enables us to gain new insights into old problems. And then skipping down a little, he writes, when we become curious, about the dissatisfying defaults in our world, we begin to recognize that most of them have social origins, rules and systems that were created by people. And that awareness gives us the courage to contemplate how we can change them. So there is risk involved most of the time in rejecting the default. The attempts will not always yield a billion dollar company or any kind of success really. And even attempting to reject a default is definitely not always the best course of action. You know, in in many cases, ideas and practices and traditions are entrenched because they've been found to be successful. And to clash against them, especially if you're just clashing for the sake of clashing, that can be unwise and even destructive. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't closely examine the various aspects of the world that we were born into because some of the most potent aspects of it are ill-founded. There's a book by Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong called Mystery of the Ages, and it covers quite a bit on the topic of rejecting the default. Mr. Armstrong doesn't phrase it quite like that, but it's the same concept that he's describing. And he talks about applying this in areas that are far more important than internet browsers or eyewear. In one section, he writes... Why do most people believe the things they believe? Few indeed ever stop to ask themselves in retrospect how they came to accept the beliefs that have found lodgment in their minds. Why in general are people in Thailand Buddhist, those in Italy, France, and Spain Catholic, those in the Arab world Islamic? Primarily, of course, it's because they and those around them grew up being taught and automatically accepting those faiths. Most people accept or reject a belief on careless assumption due to whatever they have heard, been taught, or assumed without proof. And then in another section, Mr. Armstrong hits on this theme again. He writes, Few, it seems, really think. Most people accept carelessly what they are taught from childhood, and coming into maturity, 
They accept that which they've repeatedly heard, read, or been taught. They continue to go along, usually without question. Most people don't realize it, but they have carelessly assumed what they believe without question or proof. Yet they will defend vigorously and emotionally their convictions. It has become human nature for people to flow with the stream, to go along with the crowd, to believe and perform like their peers around them. Further, most people stubbornly refuse to believe what they are unwilling to believe. There's an old saying, he who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Mr. Armstrong goes on in this book to explain his own experience with rejecting the default that he was born into and how arduous, but also how rewarding that was. And if you study Mystery of the Ages, you'll see that his experience and all that was accomplished through him changed the lives of many, many people. He did reject erroneous defaults in the most important areas, and he invited readers and those who heard him speak to examine what they had been born into, to scrutinize it, to question it, to ask why. And then, not just to become, you know, cynics or iconoclasts or nihilists who just reject everything, but to hold fast to that which is good. If you don't have a copy of Mystery of the Ages, this is just a very powerful book that can help you to examine uh, some of the largest defaults and to see what should be rejected. And this is a book that we send out at no charge. So please check out the show notes for today's program on SoundCloud for a link to that, or you can just go to thetrumpet.com and click on the literature tab there to order it. I'd like to thank Adam Grant for his powerful book, Originals, which some of the material for today's program came from. We'll leave a link to that in the show notes as well, in case you'd like to buy a copy. Don't forget to email your questions or comments to tsar at kpcg.fm. And we'll leave you today with a short parable, or maybe it's more of a joke, from David Foster Wallace. He said, There are two young fish swimming along, And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What's water? (laughs) ¶¶